Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Andreas Wagner will join us to discuss Arrival of the Fittest. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, although Darwin's theory of evolution remains the most powerful theory describing the evolution of new traits, it is unfortunately cannot say how the most fit traits arise so rapidly. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Andreas Wagner. Dr. Wagner is a professor at the Institute of Evolutionary Biology and Environmental Studies at the University of Zurich in Switzerland, where he researches evolution of biological systems from genomes to complex molecular networks. He's also an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute and a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He has written numerous scientific works and popular books on the subject, and his most recent release, Arrival of the Fittest, Solving Evolution's Greatest Puzzle, explores this issue for a general audience. And Professor Wagner, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. Well, certainly our pleasure, and certainly a, a fascinating book that you've written here, Arrival of the Fittest, in which you talk about fundamental issue that still arises coming from uh, Darwin's theory of evolution, that is, how new traits arise in evolution. Uh, I'm curious, how did you become interested in this particular topic? Well, you know, it's actually the most fundamental problem, if you will, in all of evolutionary biology and a good part of biology in general. How does nature create? And, you know, to illustrate why Darwin's theory was deficient in that area, let me just give you a simple example. There's a fascinating fish called the winter flounder that lives very far north near the Arctic Circle and in waters that are very deep and very cold. They're so cold, these waters, that they would make our body fluids freeze solid. Now, the winter flounder has come up with a remarkable innovation uh, that's called an antifreeze protein. And this uh, class of antifreeze proteins allows the winter flounder to retain uh, the fluidity of its body fluids. Works a little bit like the antifreeze coolant in your car. Now, it's very easy to see, and essentially Darwin has explained that to us, you know, how once you have come up with a new trait like that, uh, this antifreeze protein, how you would have an advantage over other organisms, for example, by surviving a bit longer in a cold winter or by expanding your habitat so you can actually get more food. And over many, many generations, an innovation like that could come to dominate or spread through a population. Darwin's theory, unfortunately, has been largely silent. Uh, and Darwin actually knew this, uh, that his theory wouldn't explain or couldn't explain at the time how new features, new traits like this antifreeze proteins really arise. Now, fast forward to the present, you know, Darwin was one of the greatest visionaries of all times and the greatest synthetic mind of his generation, for sure. He knew nothing about 
inheritance and how it worked. He knew nothing about DNA. He knew nothing about the billions of molecules in each of our trillions of cells and how they help build our body. And yet he was able to propose this principle of natural selection that has survived for more than 150 years and is still central to all of biology. But he couldn't touch the question of what makes nature creative and how it is actually has brought forth myriad innovations in life's 3.8 billion year long history. So now in the present date, we know we have all this information about molecules and how they interact, how they build bodies, and we can make much greater progress in this area than Darwin could. So the classic picture is that these changes sort of occur uh, by chance or by random mutations in the gene. Is that not a mechanism that underlies this, or is there something more um, complex than that going on? So randomness and random changes in genes are clearly still very important. There is no question about it. However, there is something much more than that that needs to happen, and a hidden architecture of life, if you will, that has to be in place that would allow nature to innovate through random changes. And I'd like to illustrate what that is with an analogy. Think of a library. Think of a library of English texts. And think of a library that is so large that it houses all possible texts that could be written in the English language. That is essentially all possible texts that can be formed from the 26 letters uh, in the English alphabet. So this would clearly be an enormous library, enormous beyond comprehension. It would contain a lot of nonsensical texts, but it would also contain a lot of meaningful texts. You know, let's say the biography of your life, of my life, of all humans that they will lived, political histories of the world, all novels that have ever been written or that could be written. And it would also describe all possible innovations, uh, innovations that we know well, like the wheel or the, the fire or the steam engine or the transistor or other innovations that we haven't made yet. Now, it turns out evolution actually innovates by, look, by searching through libraries for meaningful and new innovations, and that are a little bit, these libraries are a little bit like libraries, the Universal Library of English Texts. And to illustrate that, let me go back to the example of the winter flounder and these antifreeze proteins. Now, proteins are strings of smaller building blocks called amino acids. There's 20 different kinds of amino acids, and in a protein that's 100 amino acids long, uh, each of these kinds can occur in arbitrary order. So a protein is a bit like a string of text, if you will, a text written in a molecular alphabet of 20 different letters. Now, if you think of the collection of all possible such texts, then you have something like a library, something like our universal library, and that's a library that contains everything you could do with a protein. It turns out that proteins do much more than just provide antifreeze protection to the bloodstream of a fish. Uh, they catalyze you know, thousands of chemical reactions. They help us move when our muscles contract and so forth. Now, nature basically through populations of organisms, explores this library by changing the DNA text of these organisms that encode these proteins and thereby exploring the library, such a library, through random steps, essentially. Now, think about the following problem. Let's say there was only a single text, a single antifreeze protein in this entire library that provided this antifreeze protection. You can calculate how long it would take just by random exploration of such a library to find this text. And you can calculate, it's very easy to calculate that, that no amount of time in the universe would be sufficient to find that text. There's just way too many possibilities and not enough time. 
So this library needs to be organized in a specific way that facilitates the finding of such a text. And it turns out so what we are working on is we are trying to describe or find out how nature's libraries are, are, are organized. There's protein libraries, there are also proteins of other kinds of biological systems in which innovations occur. And it turns out they all have a common organization that is very, very different from that of any human library, but that is uncannily well-suited for innovation. Now, if you were to organize a human library, what you would do, you know, you would have a catalog, and in, in this catalog, you know, would be described in text in certain subject areas, let's say transistors or how to build steam engines, and you would organize all texts in that particular subject area, in a particular area of the library, so that uh, any reader who is interested in reading about steam engines could make a beeline uh, to that section and read all the books about it. Now, nature doesn't actually have readers like us that can make a beeline to a particular section of the library. So the library needs to be organized in a different way. And here is this organization. Okay? It turns out there is not just one text that encodes the antifreeze protective role of, uh, of this antifreeze protein. There is actually myriad texts. There's almost too many to count, you know, more than stars in, in our galaxy. And they actually don't occur in just one corner of that library, they're spread throughout the library. And in that way, it's actually fairly easy for nature to stumble upon one of these texts. What is more, these texts are connected in the following sense. You have an antifreeze protein that has a particular such text string, and you can actually walk from that protein by just altering a single letter to one of its neighbors in the library. And from that, in that neighbor, you can alter another uh, letter of the text, and so forth, until you've actually walked almost all the way through uh, the entire library, yet never have left or never have created a text that does not have this anti-freeze uh, function or this anti-freeze protective role. So in other words, these texts, essentially synonymous texts that encode the same biochemical technology, if you will, the ability to protect against freezing, are form vast networks in, this li in, in, in a protein library. And this makes it much easier for nature not only to discover these texts, but actually to preserve them in the face of random variation, random genetic change, once it has discovered such a text. Since there are just several solutions to the same problem. Yeah, and that's actually an understatement. There are not just several solutions, there is multitudes of solutions. And that's perhaps one of the biggest surprises when you study, when you study innovation in nature, that there's so many solutions to, uh, to different problems. And we see this not only on the level of, of proteins, which is a bit abstract perhaps, but we know, for example, that nature has come up 20 or so different times with a solution to the problem of detecting light, either to follow light or to evade light in the form of eyes. Okay? There is not just one solution to the problem of seeing, there is myriad of solutions. And some of these solutions have very, very different architectures. For example, the, the compound eye of a, of a fly is completely different from our eyes, so they're two different solutions to the same problem. And we see this throughout nature, that, and sometimes difficult to grasp to what extent it is true, but it is very true that almost all problems that nature has faced in its 3.8 billion year long history of life have many, many different solutions. Uh, so something like the, uh, the panda's thumb, for example. Exactly. That's, um, that's a very a well-known example that, you know, in the, the process of gripping, uh, 
you know, in our extremities, in our limbs, uh, also has multiple different solutions. And we see um, how, you know, starting also from one solution, we can get to solutions to different problems by modifying these solutions. So essentially the solution that we've wound up with for our, our current state of affairs really isn't necessarily the one that necessarily should have arrived, it just happened to have arrived. Exactly. So there's a lot of room for historical accidents. And then sometimes, you know, the solutions that nature found are not always the best ones. And so there's a very interesting you know, story about um, the, the, the architecture of our eyes. You know, in the back of our eyes, there's the retina, which is a, a very thin layer of tissue that is responsible for detecting light. And it turns out this retina has a very weird, uh, a, a weird structure, and that is the cells that really detect the light are actually not on the surface. They're actually hidden behind, you know, five or six other layers of cells. And what is actually at the surface of the retina is the blood vessels. And, you know, this is actually not really a great solution because the blood vessels can obscure light, especially if they dilate, for example. So, and light has to pass to... Um, proceed or uh, penetrate several layers of tissue before it gets to the light-detecting cells. Well, it turns out there is other organisms, especially mollusks, who have an eye with a very similar architecture, but where this what biologists call the inversion of the retina has not taken place. There, it's actually the photoreceptor cells, that is the light-detecting cells that are on the surface. So historical accidents have a big role to play in what kind of solutions nature comes up with. Are there certain problems in biology that might have more limited solutions than others? So that's actually a very interesting question, and part of that is still you know, a matter of active research. And we can you know, talk about it, for example, in the context of proteins, where this is fairly well understood, and where it's quite clear there is some proteins that you know, whose network of synonymous texts in the protein library is much, much larger than for others. So these are these correspond to proteins where it's, you know, that solve a problem in nature that has many more solutions okay, because these networks of text are larger. So it is, in fact, the case that some problems uh, have more solutions than others, but what we don't really understand is whether there is some rhyme or reason behind what those problems are. You know, what are the most difficult problems and what are the easier problems? We just don't really have a good understanding of that yet. What is current research doing in terms of trying to understand these mechanisms? Is it uh, directed more computationally, or are there experimental efforts to try and uh, guide different evolutionary systems to test the limits of their evolutionary capacities? So it's actually both. And my research group and many others are engaged in both kinds of activities. So on the one hand, we do something that's called laboratory evolution. So we take very large populations of organisms, typically microbes. And when I, when I say large, I mean you know, a billion individuals or so. And we expose them to challenges, challenges in the form of chemical environments that might be very stressful to them. For example, they might contain a salt concentration so high they would kill us. And so in the face of this kind of environmental stress, microbes need to innovate. That is, they need to come up with changes in their genome that help them survive. And what we basically do is we leave them in these environments for hundreds or thousands of generations. And usually at the end of that time, they have adapted pretty well to that new and stressful environment. So lesson one here is that innovation on that level is actually much easier than we think. Also, you know, the advantage of doing laboratory evolution is that you know, these microbes have generation times 
of the order of 20 minutes to an hour compared to the 25 years of human generations, in a human generation. So effectively, we're compressing what would be hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution into a matter of a few weeks in which such a laboratory evolution experiment can be conducted. And so what happens during such an experiment is that these microbial populations explore part of a very large library. And the solutions that, we, that they come up with, the innovative text, if you will, we can find out what those are because we have very good technology now to determine the DNA letter sequence of the genomes. That is, we do what we call genome sequencing at the end of such an experiment. And we can figure out in which way they have innovated and, and what has helped them survive in, this, uh, in these new environments. So that's the experimental part. It also turns out that we have increasingly powerful tools to study innovation in nature computationally. That's also something that we are very active in. Let me give you an example, and that involves metabolism. Metabolism is essentially a very complex network of chemical reactions that has been around you know, since the origin of life. It's a very ancient system and has given rise to many, many different innovations and does so to this day. For example, we know that there's organisms that, can, um, that have come up with the ability to survive man-made molecules, that is, molecules that have never occurred in nature before uh, since, you know, since before the 20th century. And not only are they able to survive on these molecules, you think antibiotics, or pesticides like um, DDT or industrial waste products like dioxins. Not only can they survive on some of these molecules, they can actually use some of these molecules as their only source of carbon and energy. So these microbes are extremely, they have basically turned what you might call a chemical weapon into a chocolate bar as a source of nutrients. Now, it turns out from the information that's encoded in the genome of a microbe that we can read, actually, we can predict whether a microbe is able to use a particular nutrient as its only source of energy. And if it cannot do so, we can actually ask what chemical reactions in this uh, organism's metabolism would have to change for this nutrient to become usable. And is that a difficult or is that an easy change? So we can do all of this computationally that complements in a very powerful way our experimental tools in this area. So can you get a sense then of how rapidly or, or evolutionary changes then can occur? And what, what does that imply for how our own uh, human evolution is, is occurring? So. You know, microbial systems are particularly attractive because they change so fast. You know, we have, again, you know, we can compress these time scales, you know, to from 100,000 of years to, you know, weeks, basically. And what we learn from these systems is if you have the right amount of um, uh, random mutation in your DNA, you can actually innovate very rapidly. So the biggest lesson from laboratory evolution is that innovation is actually easy, much easier than, than we would ever, ever thought, not having this kind of experimental tool. As far as human evolution, as far as human evolution, Evolution um, is concerned. It's rather clear that you know evolution and innovation is still an ongoing process to some uh, to some extent, although it happens on slower timescales. So the, the one of the best examples of recent uh, evolution in humans regards the evolution of lactose tolerance, that is the ability to um, digest the milk sugar lactose not only as babies, which we all are able to do, but also as adults. And that's an innovation that has actually arisen just about nine to 10,000 years or so ago and has spread very rapidly through the human population. There is also more recent examples, uh, perhaps especially timely Ebola, where we know that there is humans who actually have mutations that, are, that allow them to be resistant against Ebola simply because these mutations prevent the entry of the virus into a cell. And so 
basically, with regards to human evolution, the same kinds of principles apply. It's just much more, they're just much more difficult to study and they're actually uh, unfold on much larger timescales. But it's basically just a big unity of life and what we actually learn from simple organisms, be it bacteria, be it fruit flies, or be it worms that many people like to study, directly applies to the process of human evolution and innovation in, in human evolutionary history as well. It really is a, a very fascinating area of research. We are running slightly out of time. I'm just curious, um, what do you think says about critiques that uh, come from certain quarters about evolution and how evolutionary changes occur, and uh, maybe some final words about what uh, you'd like readers to take out of the book? Yeah, so what I'd like to readers to take away uh, from the book is really that this concept of a library is really essential to understand how innovation occurs. And by studying these libraries, which were completely inaccessible to Darwin, we can really understand this process. So the li nature's libraries are the key to understanding innovation. And as I describe in Arrival of the Fittest, we have made huge progress in that area. Now, as far as critique, uh, critiques of evolution are concerned, or criticism about evolution are concerned, I'd like to say two things. So first of all, there is a class of evidence that you know, was already available to Darwin and, was, uh, and, and also later and in the beginning of the 20th century. And there's a huge set of intertwining evidence from the fossil record, from the structure of our bodies, which are very similar to those of other mammals and birds and other vertebrates, to um, uh, strange phenomena such as, for example, that birds, uh, which do not have teeth, actually develop teeth as embryos, but these teeth, these, uh, teeth buds, the tooth buds they're called, later in embryonic development melt away again. Easily explained if you know that um, birds are descended, descendants of reptiles, but much harder to explain. It's not really a very meaningful pattern if you don't have this huge chain of living beings. So that's old evidence. Newer evidence comes actually from laboratory evolution where we can actually see organisms right before our eyes evolve new properties and innovate, showing that nature is creative because we can actually observe it right there in the lab. And then third, a third line of evidence is really these kinds of phenomena that we have discovered in nature's libraries, namely that there is multiplicities of solutions to um, any kind of problem that you throw at nature. Really fascinating phenomenon. And it really, again, underlines the point that innovation is ongoing and is actually much easier than we think. So to cut a long story short, I don't think the creationists really have a leg to stand on. And there are any doubts, they should read your book. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, the new book is called Arrival of the Fittest, Solving Evolution's Greatest Puzzle, and its author is Dr. Andreas Wagner. And uh, Dr. Wagner, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.